0: Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Yes, that Peter Sagal. Alice Dreger at East Lansing Info has locked me into a closet and told me I can't come out until I tell you this. Donate $50 to Keep Eli Running in 2021, and you'll get an autographed copy of my latest book, The Incomplete Book of Running. Support real nonprofit local news for East Lansing by making your $50 donation today at eastlansinginfo.news running. That's East Lansing Info dot news slash running. Don't wait, it is hot in here.
1: Welcome to episode eight of the East Lansing Insider. I'm Andrew Graham here today. It's Wednesday, December 9th, and we've got a really good show for you guys coming up. Uh, Later on, I, I sat down for an interview with East Lansing Deputy Police Chief Steve Gonzalez to talk about a couple different things. Emily sat down with our general manager, Jody Spicer, to give us an update on fundraising. But before we get to any of that, I want to get us into the roundtable. And I'm joined with a, a different pair of two people. It's not Alice and Emily. It is Emily and one of our Cub reporters, Adan Tomas-Kwan. Um, Adan, how are you doing? Welcome to the pod. Uh,
2: I'm doing good. Um, how are you?
1: <laughs> Pretty good. It's just another another gray Wednesday morning. Emily, how are you?
2: I'm doing okay because
3: I have a new furnace and we solved why the carbon monoxide detector went off this weekend.
1: (laughs) Yeah I got a text from Emily was that Saturday or Sunday morning at like three in the morning saying hey "Hey, we're at the Hampton Inn two miles from my house. Um, Her furnace had gone but you have a new furnace so you're all warm and at home and lovely. Um, So we have a Don with us here today because he wrote a very good. Very interesting story about how East Lansing Police Department and the East Lansing Fire Department are continuing to provide the emergency services that they do uh, amidst COVID. Because you know your your kitchen is on fire, your house gets broken into, you still need somebody to come and help you out, regardless of the pandemic. So, Adan, I guess, can you just take me through what you learned and sort of what you found interesting about the different things they've had to do? working through covid
2: um so basically both departments are trying their best to stay as safe as they can with social distancing and mask wearing whenever possible like if they're in a um patrol car or a fire truck then like they obviously can't social distance if other people are in there um they do try to work from home well the police department specifically they try to work from home because uh, they can do some of that work from home uh the fire department not so much uh are easterbrook did tell me that uh, they're trying to set up like a way to do telehealth appointments for non-emergency things mm-hmm. um yeah so both departments have had some cases but Uh, they're not associated with, like, working and interacting with the public, as far as they know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, and both departments do say, like, they don't think they can change how they operate, because, like, even if cases get worse, like, they're doing the best they can right now.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. Right. Emily, you edited this story, I guess. What do, you, what do you think about it?
3: One of the things that I thought was super interesting that Adon reported for us is there have been cases for ELPD and ELFD, but they didn't spread among the employees. So it seemed to me that some of these precautionary steps that the departments are taking are working. They can't control what their workers are doing outside of work and things happen but they have been able to mitigate spread within the workplace. And Adan, maybe you want to mention you had spoken to Steve Gonzalez, the deputy chief, about what happened in Dewitt. So, do you want to fill our listeners in a little bit about that story?
2: Um. Yes. Yeah. So, in up in Dewitt Township, um, one of their officers died due to COVID-related complications. And um, Gonzalez said that, like, a lot of East Lansing's officers knew him on a personal level. So that hit really close to home, especially because, um, yeah, like, the whole department had to quarantine and...
3: Right. All of the DeWitt or most of the DeWitt department had to quarantine. So do ELPD and ELFD have plans in place if COVID spreads within the workplace? How will we have access to first responders within East Lansing if that happens?
2: Uh, They do. And um, the police department has like kind of a shift system. So, Like, maybe one shift will be out with COVID, but another shift will be available to fill in. And uh, both departments have mutual aid agreements uh, with other local departments. So people from those other departments can come in and they can help out with whatever is needed.
3: Right. Those mutual aid agreements, we've mentioned that, Eli, before over the summer, because They tend to be when there's usually a protest or a couch burning in East Lansing, the ELPD could call on other departments to come in for support. So they might call on MSUPD or Michigan State Police to come in for help, but they could also be used if East Lansing is short-staffed on its day-to-day because of COVID uh, complications.
1: Yeah, I think the the other that was the real bottom line I took away from that story reading it. And I really enjoyed it was that fundamentally you still need to have a functioning fire department and you still need to have a functioning police department. And that means they, like you said, Emily, they have to figure out ways to keep it from spreading in the ranks and keeping people safe while still providing, you know, it's not like kitchen fires will stop happening. In fact, there have probably been more kitchen fires because we're all at home cooking. Um, But that, a lot of these things are easy to take for granted still, and these are people who are having to figure out not only how to navigate COVID for themselves and their family, but also how to do it so they can continue to provide these emergency services, which I think is very fascinating and very worth um, spending some time on. So if you can check out that story on EastLancingInfo.News, I do highly recommend it. What did you – I guess, Adon, I want to ask you one final question. What was something – I guess something interesting you took away from that or something that you – you maybe learned that you weren't expecting to to learn from that reporting process?
2: Um. Well, I mean, all of it was really interesting to me because I've never really interacted with the police or the fire department. Like I've never talked to anyone from them. And so, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And like just learning about like, how they're affected by the pandemic. Like, it sounds pretty stressful.
1: Yeah, I, actually, I cannot begin to imagine. I think we're lucky to not have to figure that one out. I want to move the conversation on to Emily. You had a pair of stories come out uh, at the beginning of the week, both tangentially relating to, well, one more than the other, about East Lansing Public Schools, the first being a story about how parents are feeling about a return to in-person learning and the other being an update um, on another food drive that ELPS is doing for the holidays. So I guess first things first, how are parents feeling about a potential return to in-person learning in the new year?
3: They have mixed feelings. Um, So in the article, there were two women who really gave the most comprehensive feedback when I reached out to them. One of them was Sarah Rakow. And she had pushed for a return to school at the beginning of the school year. And <clears throat> she kind of feels that perhaps East Lansing Public Schools missed an opportunity because things were better in late August than they are now. And even the MSU outbreak, there it did lead to community spread, or at least that seems to be the case. It's very hard to pinpoint at what point something goes from an outbreak and then widespread into the community. But things were better, and she feels like maybe the metrics in January won't support returning to school, but she felt there could have been a more serious investigation of mitigation of risk, and she felt that East Lansing Public Schools opted to go with high school sports, which is known to spread COVID more than classroom interactions. And she felt that the district ultimately opted to go with something that was less safe. Um, And she talked about her first grader, uh, Sarah Ruckhaus family is Jewish, but they put him in St. Thomas Aquinas school because it was operating in person. He could not read independently. And she just felt if he stayed online, he might not learn how to read this school year. Then on the flip side, we had Jill Selka, who sent some insights as well. And she said, even if East Lansing public schools returns to in person, she's keeping her son at home. And to keep in mind a return to school doesn't mean everyone has to go. You are allowed to remain online for the remainder of the school year. And she was very blunt that remote learning is difficult. She has a child in the young fives program So on the one hand, he doesn't have an expectation of what school should look like. But on the other hand, he's a five-year-old spending a lot of screen time, and it's difficult, and she's had a teacher-child stress management about how you deal with things when they're not going the way you want to and social anxiety of meeting people from behind a computer screen. But she said, based on, you know, health conditions of people within her family, they're going to keep her son home because she's afraid about the risk of transmission and she really doesn't feel completely safe sending her son to school until there's risk uh, until there's a vaccine. So my takeaway was kind of what Superintendent Dory Lyco had said is everyone is concerned about the well-being of children whether it's that there needs to be some sort of social interaction, maybe there's concerns about physical health of the children, but the concern of the children is paramount, but there's just different ways of looking at what is the most pressing issue, and that most pressing issue might vary from family to family.
1: Well, and it it seems to me, not having covered this as close as you, that there, weirdly enough, the thing that would prevent perhaps a return in January would be maybe less about, I, I, again, I don't think the concern for the children is something that is constant through all of this, but what might actually hold things up is concerns among staff and teachers. Cause I would imagine from all we know about COVID that they are probably the, the single most at risk group for a return to in-person learning. And I could very much see depending on how things go with COVID in Michigan and nationally in the next four weeks, That it it could be, you know, we would be comfortable having all of these kids, eighth grade and under in a building, but no teachers would be safe in there or would feel safe. Um,
3: Yeah. So I think
1: it's important to remember that the concerns go beyond, like, the concerns for the children is first, but there's also concerns for for teachers and staff too that have to be considered in this it's there's a lot that goes into it
3: yeah i would say there's two things to keep in mind the district has consulted employees whether it's para pros um, office workers and the teachers i th- think they participated in various work groups and they've given feedback at different times so they are are, their needs and wants are being weighed in with that. And I would also want our readers to understand school isn't set to go back in January. It's if public health measures allow, and we don't know where that will be. So no one is saying throw the kids in if we have all of Ingham County inundated with COVID. Uh, they're looking at the percent positivity Rate for testing, which is high in income, it's about 12%. They have to consider things like hospital capacity, um, the number of deaths that are occurring. And the district is also looking at cases per 100,000, which was fairly high, but I don't have the exact numbers on that at the moment.
1: Right. So Adon, if you're willing, I know you are a high school student and working through online schooling I believe what's that I guess what's that been like and where to I mean I don't want to put you on the spot too much here but what's you sh- I'm sure you have a feeling about this I'm just curious to learn what it's like from the perspective of somebody who's really at the center of it
2: um in general I don't like it too much um it feels like a lot more work outside of class because our in-class time has been basically cut in half And especially for harder classes, like, let's say, AP World History, um, the teacher can't do as much teaching inside of class as he would normally do. Like uh, last year in AP U.S. History, the teacher pretty much took up the whole hour uh, teaching us something. And this year they only have half that time. So, yeah, it's been more difficult trying to learn a lot of that at home, like just by ourselves.
1: Right. And Emily, the other story that you worked on is the the food drive. They're doing another ELPS is doing a, another food drive. They did one for the week of Thanksgiving. I believe it was that week or the week. They were trying to do two weeks, um, but a similar effort for the holiday season for Hanukkah's Hanukkah starts on Thursday this week and Christmas coming up. Um, to tell a little bit more about that. I know drop off for gift cards and food is this week, sort of probably when people are listening to this. So what's the what's the skinny on that, Emily?
3: Sure. So as Andrew mentions, the week before Thanksgiving East Lansing Public Schools distributed extra food that was donated by the community because they were not going to do a meal pickup on Thanksgiving Day. They gave out a little over 500 bags of food that were donated solely by families within the district. So now they've expanded that and opened it to the community, and now there's other options. So you could still make a bag of food. When you sign up, you've signed up to make five bags of food. And on our website, eastlansinginfo.news, we have information from Zori Lyco about what can be included in those bags. They would prefer non-perishable items. Uh, we don't know what fridge and freezer space is going to look like for those receiving the bags. So non-perishable foods to help them through the winter break that's coming up. You can also, though, buy gift cards to local businesses. So you could buy for takeout or even to a shop, and this could help then a family in the district buy a Christmas gift. So any local shop in East Lansing or to a grocery store or to a restaurant for takeout, you can purchase a gift card in any denomination. So whatever is going to work with your budget, you could purchase a gift card and then you need to submit it to the district Thursday, you could drop it off during the meal distribution, and Friday, you could bring it to White Hills Elementary School for the exact times. Again, go to our website, and that information is there, and we'll be reposting that on social media so those times are easily visible to everyone, and once the gift cards are received, they could also be mailed in, but time is ticking for the postal service to get it there, They'll take what they have and then they'll try to give it to families based on their needs and wants as well. And if you're awesome. looking for ideas of where you might be, you might get <laughs> gift cards too.
1: I, f- I felt this was coming.
3: Yes, we have a Spend Locally uh, series, which is highlighting local businesses um, during the holiday season. So please check that out as well.
1: Yeah, that's a good segue into getting into some of our other. Other coverage happening on the on East Lansing Info News these days, um, a lot of great spend locally stories. I could actually spend an hour talking about all of them and all the different places in East Lansing. You should spend your money, um, but I'm sure you have the places you like, the the places near and dear to your heart. And if you're worried about them, they probably could use your help. So, give them some some moolah. Um, but otherwise, on stories, we have a, a story from Heather Brothers about the latest meeting of the independent or the study committee on an independent police oversight commission. I love that full name because of how long and clunky it is. But they got a presentation, two presentations on Monday, one from Deputy Chief Steve Gonzalez, who will be joining us in the pod later for an interview. Um, and another from Human Rights Commissioner Liz Miller, and they both had to do with the ELPD internal complaint process. So, if a citizen files a complaint against an officer, or there's an internal administrative review process that's begun. Um, so Gonzalez's presentation basically walked through a period of six years from 2014 to 2019, with the hit like the number of complaints broken down by citizen filed or administrative um and most of them were exonerated um city manager george lohanis pretty much offered the explanation that maybe like the high rate of exonerations is not to do with a process that is exonerating people who shouldn't be but that these people should have been exonerated basically um i mean there's obviously no real way to (laughs) fact check that in the moment, but that was the first presentation, which was just a sort of overview of that. And the second one was from Liz Miller, a Human Rights Commissioner, who outlined a quote uphill struggle for transparency. The the HRC has had a lot of trouble getting body cam footage and some case reports out of ELPD as it ret- pertains to use of force. Um, and this isn't something that's I think unique to ELPD. Uh, law enforcement agencies just tend to be cagey about this sort of thing. Uh, but that's a great story to read if you want to keep up on what that that body is doing. They've got their their six-month clock to get a recommendation or get an extension. Um, and then another story on a on a sadder note is um, an obituary that Alice wrote for Elaine Natoli. Um, really a lovely obituary. I did not know Elaine at all, but I read it, and it was very, very... It was just lovely. It was very touching. Um, I know Alice and her were close, um, and it meant, meant a lot to her, so... If you knew Elaine, if you don't even, I I really do recommend giving that a read. It was was very lovely. Yeah, it was Um, a
3: moving obituary, and I didn't know Elaine either, but I could relate to being the noticeable New Yorker out of place in different places.
1: (laughs) That does not surprise me. (laughs) Anything I missed, Emily Adon?
3: Alice wrote up about the emergency drill we did with Steve Gonzalez, but I assume you'll probably talk with Steve about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we we met with Steve about a week ago, Emily, Alice, Nathan, Andrus, and I, to basically go over different disaster scenarios and how we'd cover them and get in contact with um, ELPD. And that's what Steve's joining me for later. Uh, We're just going to talk about how uh, basically how people in East Lansing can be prepared for disaster and what they need to know and Just stuff like that, um, because we found it very useful, and I think there could be a lot of very useful stuff for you, too.
3: Right. Um, We covered a lot of the big-scale emergencies, because we're probably not going to cover a one-off of one person's carbon monoxide detector going off. (laughs) But with that being said, a lot of the things that we learned about being prepared— are good for those individual things as well. And we will have some of those safety articles coming forward as well. Cause the point I want to make is you don't think it will happen to you and then it does. And then what do you do? And I'll just say, I left my house uh, when my carbon monoxide detector off, I threw a pair of slippers and a book in a bag and left. And maybe it would have been nice to have brought like a toothbrush or something. So <laughs> plan ahead. Cause one day it might just happen to you.
1: Yeah, you're not going to be able to think straight when it's 2 a.m. and the alarms are blaring. Right. So don't don't think you will, basically, is <laughs> our, our Eli hot tip of the day. Um, so next thing we're going to be getting into that interview with me and Steve Gonzalez. I'm here with East Lansing Deputy Police Chief Steve Gonzalez to talk about disaster preparedness broadly. Uh, but first... I want to explain. Last week on Tuesday, December 1st, Alice, uh, Emily and I and Nathan sat down with Steve over Zoom and did a couple emergency scenarios, tabletop drills, whatever you want to call them, of just going through how we would respond to covering different disasters, how we would work with ELPD, ELFD, emergency agencies and how they would be responding. Um, So Steve agreed to join us today to just talk a little bit about that and what people in East Lansing can do and should know to be prepared for different sorts of things that could happen. So Steve, first off, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, So first things first, the drill, we had a couple different scenarios, um, and I'm not going to get into them just because they're hypotheticals and they don't serve this conversation, but it seemed like the big takeaway from your side to the, the public or the thing that I would sort of try and headline is as far as law enforcement instructions and official word is coming out, follow those directions, like trust that verified information um, and try not to cause too much trouble. I think, like, the not going to the scene of things um, and stuff like that hit home for me. Is that sort of, from your perspective, like the first thing in a disaster is people need to figure out what's going on and then sort of follow those official instructions?
0: Yes. Um, and just for people's information, I think it's good to know that on the back side of this, there is a lot of coordination going on to ensure that we're putting out accurate messaging. In any disaster or emergency situation, messaging is going to be key, and so it, it's super important for us to uh, make sure that we're we're putting out accurate information, timely information, and um, you know that information can be trusted because it's already been vetted. So, um, if if you're receiving a message, uh, the, the likelihood that it is accurate and um, uh, trustworthy is, is, you know, it's utmost in our minds. So um, it, it's it's always important for people to understand that there's a lot of information, a lot of coordination going on in the background before a message is transmitted.
1: Right. And that's, I, I think that's also part of our onus for doing the drill of we in a scenario like that at Eli, our big thing is we might not, we might not maybe be the very first people to, transmit something but we're going to be right about it and you're going to have reliable information i think that's that's very important in a disaster scenario the other interesting thing that we got to and this was sort of i think fascinating for me is in certain large scenarios like we had one very specific one similar to a series of gas explosions that happened in massachusetts of so there are certain scenarios where if there were say enough storm damage or widespread fires or some some very odd thing i guess something people might not realize is there's a chance that elpd and elfd alone do not have the resources to entirely respond to something and that there will be a lot of other agencies likely on hand in a very large-scale disaster
0: that's correct and um You know, in a situation like that where mutual aid is called for, whether it's at a, you know, a small scale where maybe there's a a single structure fire that the fire department requests uh, a resource from Lansing Fire Department or Meridian Township Fire Department to a very large scale destructive event um, like the one that that you ran in your drill last week, uh, there is going to be assistance coming from other agencies, police or fire but the information is going to be coming from East Lansing resources or East Lansing sources, if you will. So whether that's coming through the East Lansing Police Nixle uh, wire or through the city's communications office, um, there's always going to be an East Lansing stamp on it because uh, we here locally would be running the event and um, you know coordinating those
1: messages. Right. So basically, people should be looking to the the East Lansing specific official sort of channels of communication in a, in an emergency like that, and they'll they'll find the reliable information they need. Correct. And then for For people specifically, and I think this was an another interesting point of our conversation last Tuesdays. there's a lot that people can do ahead of time to be prepared and it's not necessarily you know having the the emergency bag with clothes and toothbrush, but just um knowing where your gas shutoff is on your house, knowing um if you live like in a floodplain like there's a lot of really sort of random not necessarily random but things that people might not it might not occur to the average person to do that can really help you be prepared i guess for you you're a little more versed in this than i am what are some things that people should maybe take some time to figure out with their own houses or in their own their own lives of how to respond to different things
0: well i think the first thing is that people have to understand that Um, this type of information and these types of preparedness steps are definitely relevant to us here in East Lansing all too often. And this isn't, you know, I think this is just human nature. We, we tend to think, well, it's not going to happen to me. That's something that happens in another part of the country in another part of the city. It won't affect me. Um, And, you know, I think if we take a look at history, both uh, at a state level and a local level, we do see, Uh, natural disasters, man-made disasters that have occurred here locally throughout history, and um, it just gives us a primer for what we can expect. So you have to do a self-assessment of what your actual hazards are, um, where you live, what your your vulnerabilities may be, and prepare for that, you know, those types of events. And take an all-hazards approach, Um, you know, here in Michigan, some of the top things, you know, just to rattle off the top of my head, some of the top things we need to prepare for are weather-related events, Um, you know, utility-related events. We saw the big ice storm in 2013 where uh, people were without power for, you know, over seven to eight days.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good example of something that it's maybe not your your classic disaster scenario, but it is a thing where people were sort of reliant on that sort of emergency services response for about a week or so.
0: Correct. And, you know, at, at some point in time, um, emergency response and emergency services are going to be stretched to their limits. Um, we're very fortunate here in in the Tri-County area where everybody works very well together. We have a lot of mutual aid resources together. But if the, the event is um, large scale enough and the scope is wide enough uh, we have to be, you know, cognizant that, you know, just like that ice storm, it touched, you know, all of Lower Michigan, and so resources will be stretched pretty quickly, and uh, that's where personal responsibility, personal disaster planning, definitely comes into play.
1: Yeah, and I'll I'll share for the listeners. Um, I'm going to include some some readiness resources. Ready.gov is a great site. There's a couple um, Michigan-specific ones that I'll be. Uh, linking in this podcast, are there any specific resources or any places you think people could benefit to look or to learn from in terms of getting themselves prepared?
0: Yeah, you mentioned the one that I point people to all the time is ready.gov. You know, that one really has a, a good series of checklists that someone could work through from an all hazards approach. But it also addresses, you know, vulnerable and special populations. So think, Um, elderly neighbors and family members think small kids pets even Um, you know so ready.gov is a great one and then the CDC is a great resource as well so those are the two primary ones I would point people to.
1: Gotcha I wouldn't even thought of the CDC myself and it's kind of funny seeing as we're amid a pandemic Um, I did actually want to ask you if you've got a little time Um, we didn't we had Adan on earlier in the pod that'll be going out to talk about the ELFD, ELPD response in COVID. And I was just curious, um, obviously you guys really can't, like emergency services are emergency services. People are still going to have emergencies, um, but you have to find a way to keep people safe during COVID. I guess just briefly, how how has that process been going? It seems like you guys have sort of found a, a good set of protocols that seem to be working for you guys, but just what's that, that day-to-day sort of effort and on top of effort like?
0: Yeah, Andrew, you, you hit the nail right on the head. Um, during any disaster, whether it's this pandemic that we've been involved in for the last, you know, uh, feels like 20 years, but it's only been <laughs> a couple of months, you know. Um, but it, it, during any disaster, real life continues to go on. You know, people continue to have medical emergencies. There's still, um, you know, public safety issues that both the police and the fire departments have to respond to. And so, um, those are some of the things that can really start to stretch resources here locally with the pandemics, you know, specifically, um, you know, as a city organization and, you know, not just police and fire, but as an organization here at city government, um, it, we, we jumped on this very quickly. Um, in the early days of the pandemic, there were daily um, uh, leadership calls, if you will. There were constant uh, reactions and trying to be proactive as much as possible to the changing, you know, situation to try and keep staff and, and people safe. Um, you know, of course, frontline workers, whether it's, uh, you know, in the healthcare field or police, fire, uh, public works, even, um, you know, there's, there's only so much that you can do. I, I say quite often, and I've said quite often in the last couple months that we're in the people business. And so we can't necessarily, just kind of do everything from our offices and not interact with the public um, and put, you know, keep ourselves as safe as possible. And so, um, you know, following CDC guidelines, following uh, Ingham County public health guidelines and working very closely with uh, the the health officer here in Ingham County has been uh, very fruitful for us. And fortunately we've, we've kept our staffs uh, largely safe. Of course um, there have been cases of COVID throughout uh, the city, but um, you know, we have not seen some of the significant in- impacts that um, other, you know, public safety uh, entities have seen throughout the, the
1: country. Right. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you guys are managing to make that work, um, and thank you very much, D, for coming on and talking a little bit about uh, just disaster preparedness, what people can do. Um, I think the big takeaway is again just. Be looking for that official information coming from official sources. You don't want to be operating on rumors. Um, But once again, Steve, thank you very much for joining me. And this was very helpful. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And now we're going to hear an update from Emily and Jody, our general manager on Eli's 2021 sustainability campaign and how we're doing with fundraising.
3: Hey guys, it's Emily Joan Elliott here with our general manager, Jody Spicer, who's going to provide us with an update on funding. So thank you for being here with us today,
4: Jody. Thanks, Emily. I appreciate having the opportunity to stop in and give you guys an update.
3: Yeah, so where do we stand now with our fundraising, our sustainability campaign?
4: You know, we're doing really good. It's a really fun time of year for me because every day I get to check the mailbox uh, and go to our online platforms and see all the donations coming in. So we currently have um just about $48,000 in our campaign and we're aiming for 200000 So we have a great start, but of course we've got um, some ways to go. So So there's still uh, matching dollars available. So any donation that uh, a person gives is automatically matched. So um, it's a great time to uh, give during this sustainability campaign because of those matching funds.
3: Great. And I know we have a goal of getting 100 new donors. Can you tell us how we're doing with that? It is super
4: exciting. We actually are... Um, really doing well in that front. We have 64 new donors as of yesterday, so that is one of the things we keep track of. Um, and so we are aiming for 100. So the great news about that is that um, you know these are 64 new folks who are financially contributing to Eli, which is super awesome. So if uh, any of your listeners are have not previously contributed, maybe they can help us get up to 100.
3: Right. And last but not least, some of our listeners may not know about our Bucket Brigade. So do you want to tell them a bit about that?
4: Absolutely. So we are doing something really fun this year. Um, we have started what we call our Bucket Brigade. And what that means is that um, there are several Buckets, like literal buckets, that are collecting dollars for um, Eli. So we have buckets on investigative reporting and on uh, parks and rec. Uh, And then you and Andrew and Alice, of course, are part of. Uh, a publisher, managing editor, and city desk editor uh, contest. So the three of you have a bucket. Uh, And then, of course, I have a bucket. So if anyone would like to contribute to the Jody Spicer fan club, I have a bucket. And all you have to do is, um, when you donate, just list, either in the notes or the memo of your check, um what bucket you'd like uh your donation to go to or you can email uh Alice at eastlancinginfo.news and to find out more about it all you have to do is go to eastlandsing buckets.
3: Yes, my bucket overfloweth. It at does. You are, well,
4: Emily is winning the bucket challenge. Yeah. I have a lot of good friends and family out there. Yes, you do. And so, you know, others can do the same. Um, I'd love for my bucket to overflow. I'm sure Andrew would be the same. Uh, There's one for uh, various neighborhoods like Oakwood and Hawk Nest. So it's a a lot of fun. um, And it's a great way to be able to kind of, with your your donation, not only support Eli, but then also put a shout out for uh, something else in East Lansing
3: yeah, and I'm gonna put in an extra plug for Jody's bucket, and there are a few other bucket captains doing likewise who are triple matching funds. Yes, so oh,
4: yes, absolutely. So I agreed um that any donation that comes to my bucket, of course, automatically gets uh, matched through our sustainability campaign, but then I'm also going to match it. so it'll be it'll be triple matched
3: right. So. Thank you, Jody, for coming and giving us this update. And listeners, if you have any questions, go to our donor page, or you could also send us an email if you have further questions that aren't answered there. Thank you, Jody. Great. Thanks, Emily.
1: And that's all we have on this week's edition of the East Lansing Insider. Again, make sure to check out the special edition of this podcast we released with uh, Alice and Emily. Going through the refinancing of the Center City Bond deal, you should also read Alice's corresponding story with that on Um uh, Once again, thank you very much for listening. Please leave us a rating and a, a kind review, or I suppose you are free to leave a not-so-kind one, but we hope you like this podcast, and uh, thanks once again for listening.